and it affected my depth perception. Get it? Mm -hmm. But probably if I wore them all the time, I wore them when I went out because I went to a cocktail party once, and they were passing hors d'oeuvres, and I picked up the garnish. <laughs> the and I thought, that's it. Uh, so I had those in case I was going out to a cocktail party or something. <laughs> I didn't want to wear my clothes. So what is monovision mean? You have one eye that does one, one eye thing and then one that does both. Right? And the your other your weaker eye, they usually make. Okay. okay. The Sorry, close-up. And then mm -hmm. distant. And it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, I, Dean said, well, I wish I'd known about that. And I said, well, but if you'd never worn contacts, I mean, it doesn't work for everybody. Sometimes your eyes adjust, and sometimes they don't. And um, yeah, I, I would think. Really for you. Napkin, just to put under the It's right yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, the paper towels there, but napkins are But anyway. Oh, we'll start when John gets back. Sort of. Yeah, I didn't bring my um, computer with me, so if you're on the online and don't have your camera on we don't know you're there if you want that that's fine but i have no i don't have my my laptop lets me know by name who's there but this does not uh let us know and let, there's a hydrant see elizabeth hiding but she's got a camera we just see her ceiling yeah is that driving it looks like he's driving it does yeah so. Not watching where he's going either. Only the smile. Actually, he's doing a pretty good job. Of, pretty good job of not looking at us. Hey, Ed. <laughs> so, all right, let's start with Bible study. Let's pray. Bless the Lord who has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy Holy Spirit, we may embrace, and although by Holy Scripture, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, is it true, uh, my, my notes that we got, to one, is it, we got to 116, is that right? 117? I have two, two, four. I have two, four, two, four. Okay, two, I, didn't, four. I didn't update the thing then, so that's good. Okay, good, good. Okay, good, good. So I was looking, I, was, I, I didn't think I wrote it down two weeks ago, and I, I said, I'll write it down, or I, or I relied on someone yes. to remember. <laughs> I didn't write it down. I didn't write it down. I didn't, I I didn't listen. I was not a good listener. Um, <laughs> Wasn't even listening. <laughs> but one, one thing we should we should note um, in um, the um, our study is that Peter is is just continually presenting Christ in terms of Old Testament themes, and so the, the overarching theme he's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. This is the allusion to to Abraham being a sojourner and not a non-resident alien or resident, you know, uh, um, in the promised land as epitomizing our status in the world, no inheritance here. Um, he, he's talking about being born again through the word and the activity of the spirit, which clearly um, hearkens to the creation narrative where God created the world by word, by speaking, and by the activity of the Holy Spirit. So that, that so he's, he's again he's being drawn in to, to the discussion that way and specifically with the with the word of God um, we ended up last time um, the 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 contrast between the eternal the enduring word and the temporality of of, of the created world of you know the corruptibility of the world apart from God but the word of God endures forever. And so we, we ended last time with the exhortation <clears throat> to, to receive this word by which we are born again, made new, brought into the new creation. <clears throat> and, and, that's, um, and that manifests itself in laying aside deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, um, and, and to receive the word 
to live in a new way. Now, we come today to um, this, this, I, this passage about the stone. And so, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Coming to him uh, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now, this, this, um, this reference to the stone is significant, because when you start looking at its place in the New Testament, um, so what, what I think I'll do is read all the way through um, 8, and then we're going to go look at some verses to show where this comes from. So it says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up... <coughs> Incidentally, uh, if I'm sniffling, I'm not sick. The allergies get me here, so I'm not contagious, but I'm just always... We're with all this right. dust in well, here. Yeah. Yeah. The, the winds <laughs> make it really yeah. tough. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I just do much I know now we've become hyper-concerned like, about, like, yeah. Yeah. It's sick, not a not, cough. If I was, if I was had a contagious thing, I would not be here, but this, I do have that. Trust the winds, on, that's so true. Be aware of that. Um, and... Um, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We'll also talk, we'll develop this image here, which is the image of the church as the new temple. Living stones. In the Old um, Testament, they built the temple with stones. And now there's, he's saying there's a new temple being built, only, only with, we'll talk about um, this image, living stones, how the stones are alive, a living temple. So, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but... To those who are disobedient, the stones which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone is stumbling in a rock of offense. They stumble, being obedient to the word to which they also were appointed. <coughs> now, it's, it's what, before we d jump into some Bible things here, why would it be um, significant that Peter develops this theme of the stone so much? His name is Stone. His stone, name is Stone. And where did he get that name? Jesus gave it to him. Because he said, oh, you're you Peter, uh, which huh. my friend Bishop used to say, it means the rock, or he'd say it's not rocky, because he was sort of dull of wit <laughs> in, 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 in getting things. But um, And upon this rock, I'll build my church. So this whole theme of spiritual stones is drawn out of the very thing that Jesus had said to Peter when he, you know, confirmed his apostleship. So was he saying that to Peter, or was he saying it to the statement that Peter made? Going back to my evangelical roots, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, this, we're digressing now, and it's a reasonable digression into the, you know, um, your Peter upon this rock will give, I'll build the church and give you the keys to the kingdom and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, I mean, in my sense, you know, clearly both. Right, um, right. But it us. doesn't necessarily mean because the church always understood that that all the bishops inherited from Peter that that sort of keys. So it doesn't follow from that that that, that you believe that, that 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 it doesn't follow that verse teaches you know the later medieval papacy as 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 the as that. So that's but but clearly he means you as a person. And who and, and your confession you just made that you were the Christ, Son of the Living God. <clears throat> um, and we did, we didn't give a, a a verse on that. I didn't know we would go there, so I don't have that right off the top of my head. But we're talking about the verse where um, uh, P Jesus says to Peter, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter says, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And then Peter, Jesus says, "And I tell you, you're Peter, and upon this." Petros, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, 
and wherever you bind an earthbound, wherever you loose it, it'll be loosed. Now that power of binding and loosing, of course, was also given to the other disciples in the scriptures as well, the other apostles in the scriptures as well. So the point is, does it mean that the rock is Peter's confession, he is the Christ, the Son of the God, or is it Peter who does it? And, you know, I think we'd say both. Okay, That's, so. that makes sense. It's in Matthew... 1618. Matthew 1618 for those online. And I, my, my point was, again, to highlight this, when Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, Petros, and upon this, the second word rock is, is a derivation of Petros. Um, I'll build my church. When Peter jumps into this long teaching here about rock and stone, he clearly is understanding the, the full implications of that. <clears throat> so, um, so living stones. So, um, if you read in in uh, Exodus, there there are very elaborate details about building the temple. Yeah. And then when you even get to to, and it wasn't actually built until King Solomon's day, but they quarried stones and timber and brought them back, but the stone image was pretty much so so workers were actually putting stones together to make the temple just exactly the way God said to make it on Mount Sinai. Um, so Peter is borrowing that image and applying it now that the church is a new temple of God. Now how let's 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 draw this out a little bit. So what what defined the temple? What was it about the temple that made it the temple? God's presence is there. Okay. Meet God God there. there. So how was God's presence there? In what way? He lived there. How do you know that? In the Ark of the Covenant or okay. in the mercy seat between the angels. So so the Ark of the Covenant in Genesis that they, they, they uh, excuse me, in Exodus it talks about how the be the there's the Ark of the Covenant where the, the stone tablets that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, later on, it seems that they put some of the manna in there, and then also, I think, Aaron's rod when they had a conflict about authority. But the Ark, with whatever was in it, symbolized God's presence. And so, <clears throat> now, and something else happened that, that, that made it clear that God lived there when Solomon built it and dedicated the temple. I don't know if anyone will recall yeah, what smoke. happened when Solomon was dedicating it, had this big prayer of dedication. Smoke what and the, the presence of God was visibly the, 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 seen. The, the cloud yeah. of glory descended yes. into the Holy of Holies, mm -hmm. and God took up residence, symbolized by the ark, but visibly manifested by the presence of, of the cloud of glory. Now, we've talked about this, and uh, I, I'm going to say it again, but And these are points just kind of grasp and file away. So let me just chronologically, the commandments given to Moses were probably, there's, there's two dates that, that people argue for. One would be like 1400 BC or 1450 BC. The other would be 1250 BC. We don't, unsure about the exact date of Moses and the Exodus and scholars <coughs> debate this endlessly. And uh, so don't get caught up on that. Um, but it happened. We believe it happened. All those things go, well, it wasn't really that. You know, scholars always doubt sometimes. Not always doubt, but... Often. Um, so, <laughs> so, so God gave that commandment to Moses somewhere 1250 to 1400 B.C. And Israel wandered through the wilderness um, with the ark, and God lived in a tent. And then they went into the promised land with Joshua, and then they had the period of the judges, um, which went on until God uh, anointed Saul as king, which might be um, 1050 B.C. And then after Saul came King David, and after David came Solomon, which is about um, 970 B.C. And so Solomon is the one who takes the instructions God gave to Moses on how to build the temple, because it hadn't been built. God was living in a tent. When you hear a tabernacle, that means tent, the temporary dwelling of God, which also harkens to what um, Peter is 
an image of the um, resident alien. Because God actually was like that. Not only did Israel wander into the wilderness, not having a home there, but God lived in the, in the tent every night, pitched it. He temporarily stayed. And so, when Solomon built the temple in in you know in in the in the you know 900s BC, God went from living in this temporary place, which was his mode of dwelling the entire time from Mount Sinai after the Exodus to the building of the temple, and they built a physical building in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and that space was given um, to, um, that space was identified because uh, when David had sinned by taking a census uh, and he prayed to God to, to stop it, uh, they offered a sacrifice on this threshing floor that became the location where they built the temple. Mm -hmm. And God saw the sacrifice and and the plague ceased. Wow. So, so that become then becomes a permanent found a permanent location. And then Solomon built the temple according to the specification, glorious building. And then when he dedicated with a prayer of dedication, I think I want to say First Kings eight or so, something like that. <coughs> God with the Holy Spirit took up residence. So God lived in the temple. However, um. At the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, who, whose ministry was around 600 B.C., 600 to 580 or something like that, um, he records how because of all of the disobedience was going on in the temple uh, that caused God to send Israel into exile, in, in Ezekiel's, it's an extended narrative to get all the points of it, but in Ezekiel uh, chapters 1 through 10, he records how he, in a vision he sees God rising up from the Holy of Holies, the presence that's lived there for, you know, then 400 years, and leaving because of the abominations that are taking place in the temple. And God gets up from the Holy of Holies. He begins to leave and he stops at the threshold of the temple. And then he leaves the city by way of the Mount of Olives. And that glory never returned. Though the temple was destroyed and rebuilt, when they rededicated it, <clears throat> the glory cloud did not appear again. It, it had this sense of, even though we have a building, Israel was still in exile. And that's why, um, if you were with us from morning prayer at all during Advent and Lent, where Isaiah, this big theme of return from exile, which actually has two things in it, Isaiah brings this out, which is the people themselves returning from Babylon to the promised land, but also God coming back to his people, because in a sense he's, he's, not, he's not there. It's not that he wasn't with them at all, but it's the fullness of the covenant blessings weren't experienced. There was not the covenant blessings which were prosperity and long life and land and blessing, Israel lived under dominion of foreign rulers, and that was the big question in the first century with the Romans um, ruling over them. That The mere fact that Israel was subject to Roman rule was an indication that the exile was not over. Um, so, This plays in the New Testament because just as in Ezekiel, the glory of God, God surrounded by the cherubim, and you get the images of cherubim in two places in the Bible. One is in these chapters of Ezekiel, because God dwells between the cherubim. And so when God leaves the temple, the cherubim rise up and they carry God. And, and Ezekiel describes the cherubim in the early chapters of his book. The other place we get the image of the cherubim is in Revelation, uh, where in Revelation chapter 4 we have the, what I call use the four living creatures, full of eyes around the hand, one out of face. And if you compare Ezekiel and Revelation, the, 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 the descriptions aren't exactly the same, but they correspond. 
And we know they're the cherubim because this is the biblical echo in a couple places. God dwells between the cherubim. So wherever you have the cherubim, that's where, and they're watching because they, they guard the presence of God. <coughs> and, and, and probably also be understood as guard um, people from the presence of God because no man can see God and live. So you, you, he's holy. So these are the themes then that, and, and to, to get this temple imagery to connect some of these dots, um, the glory of God departing the temple in Ezekiel's time, circa 600 BC, paved the way for the Babylonians to destroy the temple. Because as long as God actually lived there, they couldn't do it. They rebuilt the temple in um, they five, what? They, couldn't destroy it. I mean, you okay. can't. God's, God's protecting okay. you. He's not going to, okay. you know, sure you, you, know it's, okay. you, you can't do that. But so he, he left and said, it's, I, I, I'm leaving it open because the presence of God isn't there to protect you anymore because you're covered in faithfulness. Okay. In five, 70 years later, the, the temple was destroyed in 586 or so BC. 70 years later in 515, they rebuilt the temple. It was a by by the um, it was um, what's the word I would want to use? It was nothing like Solomon's temple. There were some people who were alive when the Babylonians destroyed the old temple who remembered it, and when they, the new temple was built and they prayed a prayer of dedication without a glory cloud or anything like that, just um, they cried. Because they said, this is all we got. Now, so Israel lived from 515 B.C. on in time of Christ with this temple. It got more beautiful because in the century before the coming, before the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great to curry favor with the Jews, beautified it. So when, when the disciples in, in the Gospels on the, on the uh, Mount of Olives, they, they say to Jesus, hey, look at this temple, how beautiful it is. It's because of that, that work that was done to, to curry favor with the Jews by this sort of um, half-Jewish ruler who wasn't really legitimate. But it wasn't that beautiful before then. And Jesus said to them, you think, you know, this is beautiful. Um, not one stone will be left upon another will not be torn down. And so that, that's that temple. And so Jesus came to the temple. And so here's, here's why I want to connect this temple imagery, which has some relationship to this, because that narrative of how the old temple, what it was, why it went away, why it wasn't sustained, and why we can talk about the churches, the new temple. This is an important connection. So Jesus... I just I said in Ezekiel that when the presence of God left the Old Testament temple, 600 BC or so, we can do some. I'll, I'll bring out a chronology in a subsequent thing and do some Old Testament history on this because I got a chronology to remind. Um, he, he, when he left, he left Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem during Holy Week, how did he come? By the way of the Mount of Olives. So the imagery of Jesus entering the holy city on, on um, Palm Sunday is the, the God who has went away in Ezekiel has now returned his presence because we just have to connect the dots. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized his presence, but the real presence was God between the cherubim who left. Now we have the Word made flesh coming to, and, and so when he comes to Jerusalem and he is rejected, and this is where we're going to get the theme of the stone which the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone, that's what, um, since the temple in Jerusalem does not, and the people do not receive the presence of God, they reject it, kill it, and put it up and bury it outside the city, now the city is open to destruction again. And that's the judgment comes on, the, on this temple in a full and final way because, because the temple was a symbol of the Old Covenant and this is the end of the Old Covenant age. 
is very important to understand that because we're going to miss a lot of in a lot of the craziness of end times prophecy stuff is rooted in a failure to understand when Jesus said talks about the the um, that um, at one level we talked about the end of the age. Um, it is the end of the old covenant age. Jesus' life and ministry mark a transition from the time of the old covenant to the coming of the Messiah. Now, the rejection of the Messiah by God's people um, and the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit and the, and the sending of the gospel out to the whole world, that's the end of the Old Covenant age and the beginning of the New Covenant age, or the beginning of what the Bible called the last days. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the Spirit has come, and now the next big thing to happen is the way for Jesus to come again. But, so, so, the way that this makes sense, that, that this is the new temple, is that to receive Christ, coming to him as to, as to living stones, as Jerusalem rejected Jesus and suffered judgment, and the temple was destroyed, when we receive Jesus, we become members of his body, or to stretch the analogy, appears using stones. And the stones are, are fitted together in a perfect way. That's the unity and diversity of the body. As living stones were brought together in a house that God is building to dwell in, and God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. It's no longer merely a geographic image. It is a... Um, it is a non-space, it has a geographic sort of analogy, the temple, but it's non-spatial. The church, the temple is there's everywhere. And what we really have when the church gathers around the altar and the Eucharist is a microcosm in a place of the whole thing. The local church as a microcosm of the universal church. Any thoughts? It's a lot to, any thoughts or questions? So Just that. Just that. <laughs> well, I just well, we're going to go on to the chief cornerstone because yeah. the way they're everything's fit together, and but you need that cornerstone yeah. unless it will fall apart. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're being built up. This is the point, and and this this means that what's our as the temple we're we supposed to do. He says um, we're a holy priesthood. Now, that holy priesthood is is significant um, because it's a fulfillment of pro fulfillment of prophecy. So turn to, to Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Um, Bishop, one thing, one thing that came up while you were saying all that stuff is I was seeing the Ark of the Covenant also as, as like, here's another way the Jewish people were warned. Touch not my anointed in the wrong way. You know what I mean? They crucified Christ. And then there's destruction. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you would be destroyed. You, dishon you dishonor the Ark of the Covenant. That's right. You don't, you don't treat it the way I say you treat it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because remember, we, we saw that story of when David was going to bring the Ark of the Covenant that got yeah. taken away to the Philistines, bring it back. They thought uh, it was he said about, They put it on a new cart. The problem with the new cart is that's not how God said to carry it. Mm -hmm. He said put it on poles, mm -hmm. no carts. Yeah. Four dudes. Four corners carrying the ark huh. reverently, you know, put it on a cart. So he put it on the cart and he touched it and he died and Dave was mad. And it's like, Are you and, doing it? and so I, I also think that this highlights the truth about God's word to people like, well, so, you know, God just, you know, but God means what he says. And the Old Testament thing deals with the exterior things. But when we're dealing with receiving the word and what God says, God means what he says. Yes, he so means you to do it. And if there's something associated with it by way of consequence, let's put it this way, it's impossible for God to lie. Mm -hmm. So if he says, I want you to do this, and you don't, and this is the consequence, it, God will be would be would become dishonest if he if if, if what he said didn't result in what he said would result in. And, and so the main thing here that coming to him as living stones, the main thing we need to receive Christ, mm -hmm. the way Jerusalem rejected Christ. We receive him 
we become living stones filled with the Holy Spirit, pieced together in the temple together, each of us with different gifts, different uh, different responsibilities and roles in the temple. And, and the point is to offer up, um, well, here, let's go back to this verse here. So um, Exodus uh, 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you should be a special treasure to me above all people. Now, notice that Israel did not keep his voice, did not hear his voice, did not keep his covenant. So they didn't, they didn't receive the promise. Jesus did. He listened to the voice of the Father. He was obedient to death. We now, in him, if we receive him, as the word of the Father, and we obey his voice, keep his covenant, then you shall be a treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And here's the key verse. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, this is the idea that the the whole church is a priestly people that is in the spirit can offer sacrifices. It, It doesn't mean that when we gather together we don't need individual people set apart to be the priest at the gathering, but it does mean that the sacrifice we offer is of the whole body. And it means that you participate in this priesthood with your offering of prayer and praise every day, and your offering of your life to God. Because you're part of that holy priest and the holy nation, your sacrifice is acceptable. As we, as we say, in as quoting Romans um, 12.1 in the liturgy, uh, here we often present unto the Lord ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. Christ fulfilled the covenant and is the acceptable sacrifice. We, in Christ, in the Spirit, offering ourselves with repentance and faith, are acceptable. Our, our, our offering is accepted by God. Now, the other verse on this that, that comes up um, is where that is fulfilled is if you turn to Revelation chapter 1. This connects some of the dots that Peter is, is connecting here in a, in a visual way. Um, um, chapter, Revelation 1 6. Five and six. St. John says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The promise in Exodus nineteen five, you'll be um, if you if you keep my covenant, um, you'll be uh, you know, I'll make your kingdom of priests fulfilled in Revelation one five. <clears throat> Um, he's made us kings and priests. It could be kings and priests or a kingdom of priests. There's there's translation. But when we, um, and this is an image that's really significant. If you, if you turn to um, Revelation chapter 4, in, in verse, and and this is, if you're not quite tracking, just stay with it and make as, mental, make as many mental notes as you can. Mm-hmm. What I want to communicate, though, here is that in Revelation, John is, um, is seeing a scene of worship. His vision is the worship in heaven. And he sees images that represent spiritual realities that communicate truth. So when John goes, calls up here, is called up here, he sees God on his throne, surrounded by the cherubim, just right out of the sea, right out of the Old Testament temple. And uh, because in, even in the, old, the, the physical temple, the ark uh, w- was surrounded by images of cherubim. They had wings. They, God told Moses how to build the cherubim, how to physically portray them. But John sees the actual cherubim in heaven. And so he sees this heavenly worship. But here's the new thing from the old from the old covenant worship that is fulfilled in Revelation chapter four. Um, 
You know, he says, um, verse 8, The four living creatures, each having six wings, are full of eyes. They don't rest day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Um, and then um, there are these, uh, in verse 9, Whenever living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, sits on the throne, this forever, the 24 elders fall down before him. Now, these 24 elders were um, introduced in chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. They had a crown of gold on their head. So, kings and priests, kingdom of priests, 24 elders here, who the 24 seems to represent the people of God. They're wearing crowns. What kind of people wear crowns? Kings. And they're offering incense to God. What kind of people do that? Priests. Priests. So this, what Revelation is portraying is the people of God offering up acceptable sacrifices in the very presence of the cherubim. And that's how we conceive, if we really see Eucharistic worship, we lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. Therefore, the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, what do we say? Holy, holy, holy. Exact same thing that the cherubim and the elders say together in Revelation 4. So, um, in the Old Covenant, the priest alone, the individual priest alone, did all the ministry around the holy place and the holy of holies. And once a year he went in and <clears throat> on behalf of the people provided that which was necessary to atone. Jesus, fulfilling that high priestly ministry in the temple, went into the holy of holies once uh, as a result of his good Friday sacrifice. And so when, when the, the gospel tells that the veil of the temple is torn, it means this way is opened up, and now we can come right into the presence of God in Christ, in the Spirit, and that's what Revelation is portraying in these symbols. And this is what Peter is making the point of, getting back to First Peter, about um, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, that is the new status of the new covenant people that was never achieved in the old covenant through covenant unfaithfulness. <clears throat> I don't say that no priest was ever faithful and the offerings weren't accepted, but it never resonated to the whole people in the way it does in Christ through the Spirit. So Peter's taking this Old Testament imagery and showing how it is fulfilled in, in the church. Good question. Yes. So could it could it <clears throat> could it even be fulfilled with the old covenant? Was that even possible? Or I'm just wondering if that was ever really ever possible. Well, I mean, theoretically, if God said if you do this, this is what it is. But but what the New Testament says is because of the because of sin that touches every human, nobody can really do that until Christ. Did do that. Who did do yeah. that. Now, in him, through the Spirit, we can begin to do it. Not perfectly, but in a really in a way that's real and progressive. That is, we, we grow in our covenant faithfulness. That's why the Christian faith always requires repentance and faith. The continual turning away and dying to sin, the continual um, trust in God who sets us free. Now, now let's get to the cornerstone image where he says, Behold, I lay in Zion the chief cornerstone, lack and precious. He who believes by no means put to shame, and the stone which the builders rejected become a chief cornerstone and rock of stumbling. The stone is stumbling in a rock of offense. Now, there are some important Bible verses here that, that these come from that show how central this idea is to the ministry of Jesus. 
The first is Psalm 118, verse 22. Um, or is it Psalm 18? Yeah, no, 118. Psalm 118. Um, and it should be noted that um, that this psalm is central to um, to our Good Friday narrative. Um, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We say that's, that's added to the Sanctus. Um, blessed is he who comes in the name of Hosanna in the highest. And the psalm says, you know, in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me to become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem, open the gates, let me in. No, he's rejected. The builders rejected him. But those who received him then became the new temple. That's what Peter's saying here. Makes me think of that one song where it says, um, who is this king of glory that, about the gates, uh, opening the gates and letting the king of glory come in. Yeah. And that, so that's Psalm 118.22, that's important. And then also Isaiah 28.16 is the first one, Behold I lay in Zion, that's where that verse comes from. Isaiah 28, 16. He says, um, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a served foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That it will be settled in God, whoever believes. And that there will be justice enacted by this cornerstone. So Peter is picking up these two images then, you know, of the stone which you build a projector from Psalm 118, and the cornerstone upon which God is building his new temple from Isaiah 28:16. And this is quoted in the New Testament by Jesus himself. Um, Matthew. 2142. Matthew what? 2142. Um, he tells the parable of wicked vinedressers, the conclusion which God is going to take the vineyard away and lease it to others. And um, then he says in, in chapter 21 of Matthew, Have you not read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. What verse was that? Oh. Matthew 21, 42. Oh, 42. Yeah. And then um, it also comes up in again in Acts. And I just want to show how prevalent this theme, this, this scriptural theme was in the New Testament, in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, um, verse 11, um, when they're giving testimony, uh, Peter, Acts 4, 8, Peter, filled the Holy Spirit, um, goes on a little, and then verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, 
For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. So Peter makes directly, you're the builders, you are in charge, you rejected this, but now it's the foundation for the, for the people of God, the new temple. So, um, back to our text. So, if we're back in First Peter, chapter two, verse eight, they stumble. That is, the the, the Jewish leadership was disobedient, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so Peter's proclaiming that the church, this resident alien body, this collection of people who come to Jesus, some out of the synagogue, some out of paganism, but whatever the church was in place with no building, the only church in fully prosperous century, you, you are the fulfillment of God's promise to Moses. And Israel, his own special, a royal priesthood, kingdom of priests, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, um, I won't go in depth into that illusion. Um, who once were not a people, now the people of God. In a certain sense, this, he, he's talking to a, a, a community that would have Jews and Gentiles in it. But the, um, the reference there is to Hosea, prophet Hosea. You were not a people, become the people of God. And in the, the prophet Hosea was... Um, told to marry a woman who became unfaithful to him. So he had to divorce her, sent her away. And she actually ended up being sold into some sort of slavery and bondage. And God said to Hosea, now go pay for her and bring her back. It was an active parable for Hosea to, for him to know what it was like being married to Israel, whom God had made a covenant relationship with and yet she went and became unfaithful to all the idols around her. But God's buying Israel back, and so Isaiah's buying Gomer back. And so the image that, who were not my people, I sent you away, but now you are my people, because I bring you back in grace. That's the idea that, that um, who once not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, now have obtained mercy. It's an allusion to the Gentiles who are outside the covenant that have been brought in through faith. Or even on a secondary level or a similar level, to disobedient Israel who is not subject to mercy because of covenant faithfulness, has now in Christ received the mercy promise. So that's the reality of the church's existence, of each of us as a stone in the temple of God and, um, and priests who can continually offer prayer and praise to God and can um, serve God in the world as witnesses because we have a life that doesn't end. It's not subject to the decay and death of the world. Our bodies will die, but the resurrection hope is that we have a life that, that, that lives beyond that and that God will raise the dead and complete the thing he's done. 
So, um, that leads us into verse 11 then. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, <clears throat> this again is hearkening to a, a particular, there's the general designation of um, of the old covenant people as being a pilgrim people wandering uh, through the wilderness. But there's a specific um, reference which is in Genesis 23, 4. Where Abraham, Sarah has died, but because he's a resident alien, he has no place to bury her. He doesn't own any land. Um, don't know if he was everyone before before Sarah, but Sarah was the first one who he thought moved to you know, to build to, to to get a place. Um, so in Genesis twenty three four. Um, Abraham stood up from before his dad, spoke to the sons of Heth, that is the residents of the land of Canaan, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. So that's Hebrew of the Old Testament versus the Greek of the New. But um, when Peter says, I believe you, so I beg you, sojourners and pilgrims, is the rough equivalent to foreigner and visitor among you. And he asks to, to buy, and they sell him a piece of property for a burial cave. But okay. Abraham, so the image here when you're talking sojourners and pilgrims is that, and this is a very important image, Abraham lives in the promised land, but owns nothing in it except the burial cave, which becomes a symbol of resurrection. Because when the descendants of Abraham are raised from the dead, what will they do? To the land. Yeah, same question. Here. So, yeah, it's a little. I know that was a little. That was a little obscure as asking, but think about it. So, um, Abraham didn't own any property except the burial cave, which he buried his dead. The, the presence of the dead <coughs> buried in the promised land does provide a symbol of resurrection. To this day, in Jerusalem, the ascetic Jews. All want to be buried on the Mount of Olives. You know why? Because if you read Zechariah, mm. it says that when the Lord comes to yeah. put his feet in the Mount of yes. Olives, they believe that's where the resurrection is going to take place. Okay. And they want to be right there. Okay. So burial caves, in a similar way here, is a symbol of, I mean, I'm not sure Abraham knew all this, but by way of kind of analogy, Abraham wandering around the promised land owns nothing except the burial cave. But what was God's promise to Abraham? The father of all nations. Yeah. What about with regard to land? That that would be his land. You'll inherit yeah. the land. And this gives the ultimate horizon, not just of when they went into Canaan, but it's when the dead are raised, they'll come into their inheritance, the land. So, so the resurrection it connects the hope of resurrection with the full inheritance of the promised land. So <clears throat> that that idea of um, of strangers and pilgrims, and the Epistle to Hebrews also picks this up in uh, chapter eleven, verse thirteen, where, he, where they in chapter eleven of Hebrews he gives a litany of. Um, the faithful. Um, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice to Noah, Abraham. He says in verse 13 of Hebrews, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things desire plainly 
declared claim they seek a homeland. So this status of resident alien, therefore, rooted in the, in the image of Abraham, is something the church inherits in that we live in this world, but we don't own anything in it. Now, you don't see that as the permanent thing. And that's why we're commanded to sort of live in this world with a little bit of an open hand, because it doesn't come with us. What comes with us is how we did with what we had. And there's an inheritance beyond this that's rooted in our faithfulness, when God will reward everyone according to his works. That is, to the faithfulness to the covenant, which has its eternal reward. So, and specifically, as resident aliens, we also have an ambassadorial role as representatives of the kingdom of God. So he says, <clears throat> as, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. And lusts, when it comes up, we should realize it's not always overtly sexual. The word for lust simply means disordered. Well, it just means desire. It can be good desire, bad desire, but it is um, from fleshly lusts are the way our natural desires are bent to desire that which is not of God. And he says, abstain from, that wars against the soul, because if we give in to that, it promises to give us something, but it just makes us end up feeling guilty, distant from God. So wars against the soul, the life of Christ in us. So he says, turn away from that. And here's the ambassadorial idea. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. What that means is, we're, we're supposed to be doing good in the world. And people will say, ah, you Christians, or you this, or whatever it is, they may speak against as evildoers, yet they'll have no evidence, because we're ambassadors doing good in the world, called to respond to the evil in the world with the good, being faithful to Christ in the world. And then the day of visitation, um, it literally means the word visitation literally is from the word for bishop which is the day of, 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 of um, coming. And the image there was like in the Roman Empire, or an image, because the Roman Empire, the emperor would come to check out the city. And, and you'd want to make sure the city was in order because everything would be revealed. So, so <clears throat> Christ coming here is a day of, of that kind of visitation, he comes to visit his city. How's it going? And then what people are really doing, that's what gets, gets, gets revealed in that day of judgment. Makes me think of Abraham as well, you know, that, that he had the visitors and then also Lot. Yeah, they had visitation. Yeah, what's right. that? Let's go. I'm going to check it out. This is going on here. Yes, but it's a very good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, a couple points here that will tee us up for, for next week, so you don't have time to jump into. I want you to note something here, though, and it's very common of the, of the epistles. Paul follows the pattern. You know, Peter's mostly been talking about theology and status. All this, you know, how we, who we actually are in relationship to the world, in relationship to God, in relationship to each other. Now he's going to get into some behavioral exhortation. It's going to be servants being submissive to masters. It's going to talk about wives and husbands. It's going to talk forward to husbands. Um, and actually, I get to read verse 13 is submission first to, to governments, servants to masters, marital ordering, and um, and then the general behavior that comes out of this, all of these behavioral exhortations only make sense in the light of what Peter's just said. This is who you are. 
you're, you're living in the world as aliens. You have no inheritance here. So servants are not to be dismissive to their masters because <clears throat> the masters are great and you want a big happy family. He's talking to some who are, who are going to be being abused. God sees all of that. And justice, Jesus is Lord. He's coming to judge and to trust that he will. Now, it doesn't mean that if we see something wrong, that being submissive prohibits us from confronting the evil in a righteous way. What submission does not allow us to do is to confront by way of sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll talk more about these categories next week, but for example, in the ancient world, what what bond servants, this is really a labor arrangement, isn't the kind exactly the kind of slave we think about here where we stole people from Africa and sold them, you know, but this is something kind of a labor arrangement where a bond servant would then do work. And if the if the master, the one who for whom one was 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 in relationship with the servant uh, and worker, um, if the boss was really bad, sometimes the workers would sabotage. This stuff, and likewise, we're we're tempted to do that kind of stuff. You know, we. Um, and what Peter is saying is, remember who you are, and this is why we forego exacting the justice in every way that we could now, because we're looking. We have this verdict from God. We're already accepted, and I don't need that from that person. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's because a lot of times people look at these things. You know, the ordering of work relationship, the ordering of marriage, well, you know, that's, that's uh, all these things that, that they're good or bad in, in, in comparison or, or how we think they should be ordered or how we should deal with them, how we should protest. But we're not, in, we're not from the world. We are in Christ and therefore bearing witness by what we do to this larger reality. And because we participate in the eternal kingdom already, we can endure injustice in time. Again, nothing wrong with speaking out against it and confronting it righteously. Never anything, though, that changes our verdict of innocence. That's what we really want to focus on. So all the order, on my point here in closing is simply all the order of these relationships in the world only makes sense based on the fact that we are in the kingdom. Seems like that's a pattern I'm noticing in morning and prayer that the first is setting up, this is who you are, yeah. now this is how you behave. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's really interesting. And, and it's why we have to remember who we are in order to behave how we're supposed to behave. That's why Christianity mm-hmm. can never begin with morality. It always mm-hmm. has to begin with prayer, with remembrance. Who am I? Oh, this is who I am. This is what then gives me the vocation to go out of life. We drift from our prayer. We get caught up in reacting to the world rather than living out of a relationship with God. What chapter, what verse are we in? Yeah, we're going to do this here. So we're we're, we're going to pick up at at 2.13. Let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good with you all, Mimi, Adriana, Ed, Jim and Phyllis, Cheryl. Who Bye, everyone. Have a good day. Finn was here. Now she's there. <laughs> if anyone else was there, we oh, this Elizabeth was here. We couldn't see her because she didn't. Short picture. And there's two of Mimi. So. Two Mimi, yeah. <laughs> two Mimi, the twins. The twins. They were here last week, too. Oh, really? The twins. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Ah, so good. You all started Yeah. I was thinking of the, of the cornerstone, you know, because... When you're built, you know, I think oh, the, yeah. old, the old cathedrals, you know, that cornerstone, that was so, it held everything together. So if you didn't have that cornerstone, that whole building would fall apart. Yes, so, that's yeah. right. We have, we have a cornerstone down in our church. I noticed that. Which is yeah. the wall. Yeah, it's on the wall. Stop <laughs> <laughs> holding the thing together. It's a stone that happens to be important. <laughs> uh,
Okay, I heard your stomach growling and my stomach growling. <laughs> <laughs> that means lunchtime. <laughs> Did you?